Everybody wants something to happen. Everybody. Everybody wants a revival. Everybody is tired of the influx and growth of New Age in Great Britain. Everybody is tired of the fact that there's more mosques being built than churches in England. Everybody's tired of the fact that they're teaching safe sex to kids in school. Everybody's tired of the fact that the crime rate gets worse and worse, the divorce rate gets worse and worse, homosexual influence gets worse and worse. Everybody's tired. So people want something to happen. People desperately want something to happen. There are people called missiologists, and all they do is look at facts statistically. The same as you have market analysts looking at statistics, there are people who study missions and conversions statistically. The point is this. Every year, church attendance goes down in England. Even major evangelistic events like Billy Graham Crusades, if you look on a chart, I went to one of these lectures, it only temporarily slows down the pace of decline. Nothing turns things around. When Reinhard Bunke goes to Africa, thousands and thousands and thousands of people are saved at one meeting. When the same man, and he's honest, as far as I know, he's an honest preacher of the gospel. And the same brother, a powerful preacher, with the same gifting, the same anointing, the same calling of God, the same person comes to this country with his minus the plus program, practically nothing happens in comparison. Now, thank God for any individual saved, and God's word does not return void. I accept all that. But when I see what happens when that brother goes to Africa, everything happens. But when he comes here, nothing happens. I worked on a Billy Graham crusade in 1989, London 89. It had no real impact on church attendance or, or the size of the body of Christ in greater London. None, maybe a thousand people. After, after two years, they figured maybe a thousand people at the most. Now, praise God for that thousand, but for all the money and work that went into it, you would see what would happen if Billy Graham would go to Brazil. <laughs> it would be incredible. Those things, like Billy Graham crusades and Reinhard Bunke things, are honest attempts. They were honest attempts to promote the gospel. They weren't gimmicks, they weren't manipulated things, they were honest attempts. There are other things that are basically more gimmicky, and they work even less. A lot of money went into something called the Gym Challenge. They reckon that a quarter of a million people could be saved in a few weeks through British Pentecostalism, because that's how fast the Pentecostal churches grow in Kenya. That's how fast they grow in, in uh, Korea, in Indonesia, in Brazil. So therefore, if we get the right program, it'll happen here. So they brought in these secular marketing people and they're having car raffles and all sorts. What happened? <laughs> you know what happened. Practically nothing. Praise God for any individual who was saved. Some people were saved. God's word doesn't return void. But to go by a quarter of a million people in a few weeks, the way the Pentecostal churches grow in the poor countries in the developing world, that didn't happen. The point is, everybody knows that what happened in the early days of Pentecostalism in Britain with uh, the Jeffries brothers and the Sunderland revivals and Smith Wigglesworth, 
or what happened in, in, in the States in the, the Azusa Street revivals in California or the Sunshine revivals in Australia. Everybody knows that that's what's happening now in Africa and in Asia and in South America. It's not happening anymore in Western countries. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that the biggest evangelical church in this country, Kensington Temple, is not even an indigenous church. It's an Afro-Caribbean church. It's people coming here, the spillover effect of people coming here from these countries in the Commonwealth where the revivals are happening. Now, thank God for what he's doing in Africa, but you can't import revival. Now it's the white man who's the pagan and the black man who's the missionary. When I was in Singapore, I told the Chinese people, don't get into the materialist gospel of mammon, the name it and claim it. If you make the same mistake as the white man, your church is going to end up just as dead as his. True. Everybody knows that it's not happening. We had the great... Uh, the Kansas City phenomena four years ago. I always loved this one. They came to the Docklands Arena in London. The big charismatic and Pentecostal churches packed thousands and thousands and thousands of people in to hear John Wimber, Mike Fickle, Bob Jones, and Paul Kane. They predicted the greatest revival in history of Britain was coming in October of 1990. And all the people from Kensington Temple and St. Andrew's Chorley Wood and St. Michael of Belfry and Holy Trinity Brompton, they were all there. Yeah, yeah, it's going to happen. Well, October came and went. November came and went, 1990 came and went, 1991 came and went, 1992 came and went. And again, in the four years since the great revival predicted by Mr. Wimber and the Kansas City prophets, more mosques have been built in England than churches. Who had the revival? Mohammed? The fact. Remember Deuteronomy 18, Neve Sheker, if somebody predicts something in the name of the Lord that doesn't happen, they're a false prophet, get away from them. Now, we're under grace, not under law. We don't stone them to death anymore, but the sin is no less serious. To allow people like that to continue. Who's into Toronto? The same people and the same churches that were into Kansas City. Same leaders. I was in New Zealand. Several Coates came to New Zealand. He's into Toronto. He's the big promoter. I was in New Zealand. He predicts an earthquake is going to come by October. They take out ads on the newspapers and television and full-page ads in the newspaper and, and on the radio. Born-again Christians say earthquake is coming. Be here in October. No earthquake came. Born-again Christians were mocked and laughed all over New Zealand in the media. He didn't repent. didn't even accept responsibility. Yet people will still go follow people like that. What does it say in Jeremiah chapter 5? The prophets prophesy falsely and my people love it so. What happened in the last days of Judah is a type of what happens in the last days of the church, as you may have heard me say in other tapes. It's a type. That's why the New Testament always uses the history of what happened in the last days of Judah to illustrate what's going to happen in the last days of the church. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Isaiah and Jeremiah said that before the captivity. There it is in Revelation. Right? The false prophets. Jesus, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, over and over. Watch out for the false prophets. They would rather listen to the false prophets instead of the true ones like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They were sacrificing their babies to demons. What do you have today? Four million babies aborted for economic reasons, the worship of mammon. 
over and over. And then it got really crazy in the last days of Judah. The people who knew the word of God became sick. The people who didn't laughed. Look at Jeremiah 15. Verse 16. Thy words were found and I ate them. Thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. So the guy had a joy and a delight. However, verse 17, I could not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult because thy hand was upon me. Judgment was obviously looming, but people were not looking at the word of God, so they thought they were going to be blessed when in fact judgment was coming. Is it any different today? No, it is not. Last week, Outrage, the homosexual activist organization says we have a list of ten homosexual Anglican bishops, including the Bishop of London. Come on, come clean, come out of the closet, Bishop. He sticks his head out of the closet and says, my sexuality is ambiguous. The week before last, Bishop Derek Rawcliffe, Anglican Bishop of Galloway, oh, I know some gay men are bitches, this is what he says. But even though some of them are bitches, most of them make better priests than other men because they're more sensitive. The problem with St. Paul was that he didn't understand human nature. This is in the last few weeks. This is just the last few weeks. An evangelical bishop was on TV last week. I watched an evangelical bishop. The Church of England has only taken a stand, he says, against homosexuality among the clergy, not among the people. George Carey, the week before last, you heard him. What did he say? He said... We appreciate the fact that there are all manifestations of love. He claims to be an evangelical. Of course, he's an evangelical charismatic who withdrew the patronage of CMJ, went on the radio with the chief rabbi, Jonathan Saxon, denounced giving the gospel of salvation to Jewish people. Last month, he went into the media and condemned smuggling Bibles into China, refused to stop the interfaith worship in Anglican churches worshiping demons, other gods, other gods are demonoi in Greek, Shadim in Hebrew, in Deuteronomy. Some evangelical, but that's what... Now, all this is going on, and all you have to do is go into one of these Anglican churches who are into the laughing thing. What are they doing? What do charismatic Anglicans have to laugh about? Why are they rolling on the floor laughing? What do they have to go like this for? The world is mocking this. In our office, we have a stack of press clippings. An unsaved woman, a reporter, went to a meeting in one of these Toronto meetings. She was, quote-unquote, slain in spirit. She wasn't even saved. Neither did she get saved. In the Word of God, in the book of Acts, when the fire fell, people were saved in droves. In Wesley's revival, in Daniel Rowland's revival, in the early days of Pentecostalism, when this kind of phenomena happened, it was unsaved people falling under the power of God and repenting. It wasn't Christians acting like kangaroos. First Corinthians 14 says that Christians act crazy and become hyper-charismatic, verses 22 and 23. It says two things will happen. The ungifted and the unsaved. The unsaved will not want to get saved, and those who are not open to the gifts won't want them because they'll think charismatics are crazy. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 14. What do you see happening? 
I believe in signs and wonders. I'm a committed Pentecostal. But I also believe in the Word of God. And if these things are not practiced biblically, at best they're of the flesh. At best they're a true gift being misused. At best. But if you've watched some of these videos, you have to ask the question, is this stuff even demonic? Some of it. Some of it. Rodney Brown, I was preaching about hell and hysterical laughter hit the whole place and the more I describe what hell was like, the more hysterically the people laugh. I have unsaved loved ones in hell. I'm sorry, but I just can't bring myself to, to laugh at it. When I think of my father eternally separated from Yeshua, I can't laugh. Rodney Brown in his book, I got his booklet on revival. Page 6. If Satan manifests, I'd rather be at a meeting where Satan manifests and nothing happening. If Lucifer is being manifested, just praise the Lord for it because at least something's going on. This is what he teaches. Young E. Chow has the second biggest church in the world after the Pope. The man is into Buddhist shamanism. He just walked out of Wembley with 57,000 in his pocket for one hour. Nope. As we'll see, Lord willing, in Liverpool on the 22nd, they've made a golden calf. The word in Exodus 32 in Hebrew, for, to laugh, the people rose up to laugh, it's not litzok. Litzok in Hebrew, you have different structures in Hebrew. The Hebrew infinitive or shema po'al of litzok, to laugh, is not pa'al. It is letzahek, p'el. It means a PL structure of a verb, of an infinitive, it means an organized, predetermined, contrived effort to fulfill the definition of the verb. So when it says the people rose up to laugh, it's not just the soak, the light structure, the pal, it's the PL. They planned, they contrived to do it, it was staged. They were very anxious about nothing happening. So they decided to make something happen. We'll look at this when we look at the golden calf. Now. So far it's easy to see all the stuff that doesn't work. So far it's easy. What will work? What will make unsaved people believe? Obviously, when unsaved people see prosperity preachers from America who've already made born again a household joke in the States with their scandals, when unsaved people see these guys, they say the gospel's a con. What did Jesus say? The sons of darkness are shrewder than the sons of light? Unsaved people see through this stuff. There's very few unsaved people capable of being that stupid to send these guys money. Very few unsaved people can be that stupid. It takes a born-again Christian to be that thick. We can see they send reporters to watch Toronto meetings and see the insanity, and it's just what Paul said would happen. They won't get saved. These things prevent revival. People are hardened against the gospel. They're hardened anyway because this nation is backslidden, because it's, most of its church is backslidden, and people have seen and heard so much that's never come to anything even Christians will begin to get skeptical soon. You watch. Even Christians, when they, when they see, I, I, I said 
Last August, when I came back from Australia, I told you what, some of you know what happened. I was on an island in Indonesia, where the people were pagans. These were pagans. And uh, they had these big coconuts, and you hacked the top of the coconuts off with a machete. These are not like the coconuts you get in Sainsbury's. These were huge, big, big hugs. <laughs> and I'm drinking out of these, one of these coconuts, you know. And someone says, come on, I want to show you something. So we walk up a path through the bush. This is right on the equator, right on the equator. And these natives, some of them put on masks, looking like dragons, and some with grotesque faces. And they begin pounding on drums. Like this, boom, 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 boom. And then some of them begin dancing, and, and the dance steps become they're like gyrations, and it begins to look like they were mimicking, like they were sexually connotated gyrations, that they were mim mimicking different kinds of sex acts with the dance steps. And I said, what's going on? And they said, they're asking the spirits to come inside of them. So the things manifest, and they get these masks on, and they're doing all this stuff, you know. And then they take the masks off. One guy gets down, he picks up one of these big coconuts, and I picked up the fragments afterwards to make sure it was real. And he rips the coconut to bits with his teeth right in front of me. You know, you got to hack the things with the machete. He rips it. He did something that not only a monkey would do, was something only a monkey could do. He had these orangutans in Indonesia. Then guy, he picks up wedges of glass about the size of the palm of your hand and just eats it. No blood, just eats it. Is it were a wafer, a biscuit. And they get down like this, and they're going like this. I said, what's this? I said, that's the monkey spirit. I said, what? He said, well, he's got the monkey spirit. <laughs> I never saw anything like it until I got off the plane in Heathrow. Only this wasn't pagans in the jungle anymore. These were Christians at Holy Trinity Brompton. <laughs> Not only did I see the monkey spirit, I saw somebody who had the rooster spirit. Someone else who had the hyena spirit. This one guy must have been a platypus. This one had the kangaroo spirit. The only place in the Bible where there's any justification for this is where the judgment of God fell on Nebuchadnezzar and the mind of the beast was given to him. And the day of Pentecost, they heard the mighty praises of God. They didn't hear roosters and hyenas and stuff like that. <laughs> and we'll talk about this, Lord willing, when we do the golden calf in Liverpool, how what happened when they made the golden calf, it was the, the rabbis calculate the law was given on Hag Shavuot the same day as the Feast of Pentecost. Only when the law was given, 3,000 fell. When grace was given, 3,000 were saved. But when Jesus went before the Father to send the Spirit, God was going to give His covenant in its fullness with the Holy Spirit. The apostles waited. Jesus said, wait. And they waited until it came. That undid the curse of the law. When the law came, Moses said, wait, and instead of waiting... They made the golden calf. A golden calf, they come to these various Egyptian gods associated with uh, harvest and things like this. The calves themselves were not the gods. They were seen as the vehicles to bring the gods to the people. But then they became confused with the gods. We'll explain this in Liverpool, uh, St. Helens on the 22nd. 
And that's much of what's going on today. It's like a golden cast. If people rose up to laugh, they contrived to do it. Nonetheless, what's the real solution at this Pesach time? Something in the early church happened called the Quadridecimian Schism. In other words, Jesus was not crucified on Good Friday and he didn't raise from the dead on Easter Sunday. As the church paganized after Constantine, they changed the resurrection day to the first Sunday after the vernal equinox, which was a pagan day. Jesus, of course, these events of his crucifixion and resurrection transpired in and around the 14th of Pesach, uh, Nisan, in Pesach, Hebrew month of Nisan, or Aviv. And what happened, what happened that caused people to believe? Some people try to tell us that when the unsaved see signs and wonders, signs and wonders and miracles will cause them to believe. Now again, I emphasize, I am a Pentecostal. I believe in signs and wonders. I sometimes practice gifts of the Spirit. In fact, frequently. However, let's look what happened at Pesach. Some of you know it already. Famous rabbis would come and debate. And they wanted Jesus to put on a show. Have you seen this rabbi? Have you seen that rabbi? Have you heard this rabbi? But this one particular Pesach, there was one rabbi everybody wanted to see. This rabbi can feed thousands of people with a little boy's picnic basket. This rabbi can walk on water. This rabbi can heal the sick. This rabbi can even raise the dead. Where is he? Where's Maurice Cervello? <laughs> Where is Rabbi Yeshua Bar Yosef Minasetet? They wanted him to put on a show. They had a signs and wonders gospel. Secondly, they wanted somebody who was going to get rid of the Romans the way the Maccabees got rid of the Greeks. They had a kingdom now, a triumphalist gospel. And thirdly, if you read the Halal Rabbah, which they were singing to Jesus from Psalm uh, 118 to, to uh, 113 to 118, they were singing, Hosanna le ben David, Hosanna to the son of David, give us prosperity now. The, they had a prosperity gospel. They didn't want a Messiah who was going to be a suffering servant, Hamashiach ben Yosef. They wanted the one going to make them rich, Hamashiach ben David. That's his purpose in his second coming. Most of you know this. Jesus wouldn't put on the show. Instead, he did the Vedikat Chametz. He purged the leaven. Passover begins with the Vedikat Chametz. Leaven has to be purged. What's leaven? It's the figure of sin, particularly sins of pride because it puffs up. Pride is the kind of sin that under undergirds other kinds of sin. If somebody has a greed problem, their underlying problem is pride. If somebody has a lust problem, their underlying problem is pride. Pride is the kind of sin that underlies other kinds of sin. But pride is also associated with false doctrine. That's why Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, Sadducee and Pharisaic Judaism and the Sanhedrin, were perverting the Torah. And they were turning it into a business. They were profiteering on the blood of the Lamb. The Sanhedrin would be responsible for the inspection of lambs, up to 73 or 74 different blemishes. 
and unable to find a blemish on a lamb, they would approve it for sacrifice. That was the same day that they put Jesus on trial, the Lamb of God. Finding nothing wrong with him, they sacrificed him. Didn't know that's what they were doing, but they were fulfilling <coughs> the inspection of the Lamb. However, what they were saying is, hey, listen, uh, you need a lamb without blemish, I'll tell you what you do, you go to my cousin Shmulek, the kosher butcher, and give you 10% off under the table, the lamb will be all right. Trust me. The religious leaders were profiteering on the blood of the Lamb. They were twisting the Word of God for their own aggrandizement, exploiting God's people and profiteering on the blood of the Lamb. The fortress Antonio was towering over the Temple Mount. Instead of getting rid of the Romans, God got rid of them. As I always say, he's much more concerned with the sin in my life and your life than he is with the sin in the lives of the unsaved. He's more concerned with what's wrong in here, in here, and in here, than he is with what's wrong in those who don't know him and are not called by his name. So what does Jesus do? He cleans the money changes out of the temple. Why? Judgment begins in the house of God. It was the Bedichat Chametz who was purging the leaven. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. These guys are corrupt. They're into pride. They're into money. Get false doctrine. Get rid of it. He was fulfilling the Bedichat Chametz of Pesach because it happened at Pesach. Then it says, they brought the lame to him and he healed them. These signs follow. Jesus would never allow signs and wonders or miracles to be amplified above repentance. Never. The same thing happens at Hanukkah in John 10. It's the Jewish feast of miracles. What does Jesus say? They pick up stones to stone him on the feast of miracles. And he says, for which one of the works do you stone me? If signs and wonders are the key to revival, how come after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, how come after they brought the lame and blind and he healed them, a few days later they were saying crucify him? How come these prosperity preachers, always saying they have the miracles, have been around so long and no revival has come? On the contrary, the gospel has been disgraced by the scandal. What then is the solution? Unsaved people are getting hard and skeptical. In America, born again is a household joke because of the prosperity preachers. And they're coming here now because the leaders of the Pentecostal churches in this country have rolled out the red carpet for them. Rodney Brown comes out of that whole word faith thing. It's a form of Gnosticism. Makes God the servant, you the God. What happens at Pesach? With these things in view, let's open and see what comes out of it. Gospel according to St. John, chapter 20. Heavenly Father, we just ask you now, by the power and presence of your own spirit, to open our eyes and our hearts to the glory and meaning of your word. Help us, Lord God, in your grace and in your strength to be not only hearers of your word, but doers also. In the name of your Son, Yeshua, who is our King, our Messiah, our Righteousness. Amen. 
נפשכנו וצדקתנו. אמן. One of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Yeshua came. The other disciples were therefore saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas, he said, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst, and he said, Shalom Aleichem, peace be with you. But then Thomas said, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, now in the Greek this is accusative, It's one verse that proves Jesus was God because he accepted worship. Same as he did in Mark 14. Jesus accepts worship ten times in the New Testament. It's important for witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses. And Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me and have believed, you have believed. But blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Poor Thomas gets the blame for everything. We even have a colloquialism, a doubting Thomas. However, when we read this in the Synoptic Gospels, we see Thomas was no worse than all the others. Let's look at the end of Matthew. In Matthew's account, it makes no mention. It just says that he rose and he came, and they worshipped him, not simply Thomas in Matthew 28:9. But let's look at the end of Mark then. In Mark, it says, verse 11 of Mark 16, when they heard he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Not only Thomas. He just gets the blame. Let's look at Luke. In Luke 24:37, they were startled, thinking it was a spirit, that he wasn't literally written, uh, risen. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do you doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet. He says to them, not just to Thomas. Now, obviously, it was particularly true of Thomas, But it was not only he who doubted. What the gospel writers do is they take certain of the disciples and make them prototypes or, or archetypes of general personality descriptions. For instance, Peter is always the impetuous one. Thomas is the doubter. He's always been a skeptic. Like in the story of Lazarus, he was skeptical. Should we go die with him? Thomas is a picture <clears throat> of two things. One, he's a picture of the Jewish people as a nation. Blessed are those who do not see and believe, but you believe because you see. Again, 
when Jesus comes back in Zechariah chapter 12, 10, in the tribulation, the Jewish people who were in the tribulation look upon him, where they have pierced, and mourn as one mourns for an only son. They see the suffering servant Messiah, the son of Joseph, Hamashiach ben Yosef, is also the son of David, the conquering Messiah, who's going to set up the millennial kingdom, Hamashiach ben David. The Jewish people will see the pierce in his hands and accept him as the Messiah at the end. Thomas is a forepicture of them. He pictures the skepticism and doubt of the Jewish people. However, he's also a picture of all human doubt. Now, Jesus was manifested to them in the breaking of bread, it says, doesn't it? The bread of his word. When Jesus rose, he wanted to show he was in his spirit, so he physically ate something. After Jesus rose Lazarus from the tomb, he's seen eating with Lazarus in chapter 12. When he raises a little girl from the dead, Talitha Takubi, in Aramaic, he says, give us something to eat. Spirits, spiritual bodies don't need to eat. So the Bible always uses the idea of somebody being resurrected, eating, to show that it's literal resurrection. And this again goes against certain things like the Moonies, the Jehovah's Witnesses, that say it was just spiritual. Of course he walked through the wall. Now, whenever you see somebody that's been resurrected, it tells something about our future nature. It was a physical resurrection. Jesus was identifiable. Not at first, but he was in the breaking of the bread. And he was able to do things like walk through walls. That teaches something about our future. What happened to him shall be unto us. He is the prolips, called prolipsis. He's proliptic. Our resurrection and his are the same event. Only he's the prototype. Look at Hosea chapter 6 verse 2. Hoshia Hanavi. He will raise us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. You see that? Us. We will raise on the third day. Now, the third day means something. But what happens to Jesus happens to us. 1 Corinthians 15. He's the first fruit of the resurrection. When the high priest was out in the Kidron Valley at sunrise, at the first day of the week after Pesach, he had to bring the first bit of grain offering from the Kidron up through the east gate to Shadarachamim into the temple. All four Gospels tell us Yeshua rose at sunrise at the very hour when the high priest was bringing in the first fruit. Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection. Same hour. Our resurrection and his are the same event, only he's the first. So his resurrection teaches about ours. Another thing is the transfiguration. Remember, at the end of Zechariah, when he comes back, Zechariah 14, it says three times, the Feast of Booths is celebrated, Hag Sukkot. It's a type of the millennia. It's the last holiday typifying the millennia. So when Jesus is transfigured with Moses and Elijah, Peter wanted to build three. Here it is. Here's the Messiah set up the kingdom. Now, you have Moses, Jesus, and Elijah all transfigured. Elijah, a man who never died, he was raptured, Right? In the chariot, he was raptured. Moses, somebody who died. And Jesus, we shall be as he is. Doesn't matter if you die or if you're here alive when he comes, we're all going to be the same and look the same. All of those things teach something about our future. 
Nonetheless, let's go back to our friend Thomas. The second thing Thomas represents, in addition to the Jewish people, as per Zechariah 12, is human skepticism. The apostles had high hopes. When Jesus came in on the triumphal entry, they were unable to distinguish once again between the son of Joseph and son of David. They didn't understand it was one Messiah, two comings. That he's going to set up the kingdom in his return. You've heard me say this many times, most of you. Now, he gets crucified. Jesus would have come to Jerusalem at least three times and sometimes four times. Three times for each of the pilgrim feasts, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. But we also, in John 10, see he came for Hanukkah. So he come at least three, four times. There was always an expectation the Messiah would fulfill these holidays, and he did. John 7, he was fulfilling Sukkot with the living water, the Maim Hayim, when they poured it out on Gabbatha. He was fulfilling Ezekiel 47, partially. Passover, he's the Lamb of God, but they didn't want to understand that. John 10, he's fulfilling Hanukkah. The first altar was, of course, defiled by the blood of the swine, by Antiochus Epiphanes. So the stones were Mekudesh, they were, they were sanctified, so they couldn't be thrown away. But neither could the stones be used on the altar, the Nesabeach. So they knocked down the altar and stacked the stones in the court of the temple, Solomon's portico probably. And they said, at Hanukkah the Messiah would come, and the Messiah will tell us what to do with these stones of the altar. We can't throw them away because they were sanctified, but we can't sacrifice on them as an altar because they've been defiled. What we do with the stones, we'll leave them here till the Messiah comes. And what does it say in John 10 at Hanukkah? They picked up the stones to kill them. <laughs> That's what they did with the stones. When the Messiah came to tell them what to do with the stones, they tried to kill them. Now, Jesus was fulfilling those holidays, but not in the way they expected. But after all these things, they figured this last time has got to be it, the triumphal entry. They're singing the Hallel Rabbah to Yeshua, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, and they begin celebrating it with Lulavim as if it was a feast of tabernacles. When you see churches celebrating Palm Sunday, it's ridiculous. The Jews have to sing the Hallel Rabbah twice a year in their Machzor, and, and they still do. Once was Pesach, when he's supposed to sing it with hands-waving to the son of Joseph. The second time in the Machzor is Tabernacles. We're supposed to use the Lulavim. The Jews of Jesus' day began celebrating Passover as if it were Tabernacles. In other words, don't give us the son of Joseph. Give us the son of David. We don't want a Messiah coming in a donkey. We want a Messiah coming in a Mercedes limo. We want, him, we want his dominion, his blessing, his prosperity. We don't want his suffering. Now, not much different between them and the prosperity preachers today. Remember, the same three mistakes that most Jews made that caused them not to be ready for him to come the first time. The Indian theology, prosperity theology, and a wrong view of signs and wonders are the same three errors that Satan is going to use to make many Christians not be ready for him to come again. Same three errors. Nonetheless, let's look at Thomas. Thomas is at this point now where there was one disappointment after another. 
First there was Passover, then there was Quorum, then John 7, there's Tabernacles, and then there's another Passover, and then they crucify him. That's it. Thomas is skeptical. He's more than skeptical. He's had it. He doesn't know what he believes anymore. One disappointment after another. Billy Graham minus the plus gym challenge. One after another. People get skeptical. Thomas says, that's it. I've been taken for a ride too many times, he felt like. They told me it was going to happen, and it never happened. I trusted everything when I followed this guy, and nothing happened. From now on, I don't believe until I see. You want me to believe? Show me. Christians will get skeptical, but unsaved people are going to get even more skeptical. Show me. You want me to believe in your Jesus? Show me. You want me to believe the gospel? Show me. Let me see him. Where's his crucified body that's been resurrected? Then I'll believe in your Jesus. I've seen your Jim Baker and your Marla Cirillo. I don't want your religion. Can you tell me I should believe it when that's your leaders? No, no. Let me see, let me see a body that's been crucified and resurrected. Then I'll believe it. Show me a body that's been crucified and resurrected. Where is he? I'll believe. Show me. Let me see it. You expect me to believe? The Muslims want me to believe what they say. The Jehovah's Witnesses want me to believe what they say. The Mormons want me to believe what they say. The R.A. Christians want me to believe what they say. New Age wants me to believe what they say. Who should I believe? I believe when I see. Show me a crucified body that's been resurrected, then I believe. A crucified body that's been resurrected. That's when they'll believe. My father lived in China up to the communists took over. My father was not a believer. Knowing my father as I did, I'd be very surprised if I didn't have a few very close Chinese relatives I haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet. If you ever happen to be wandering down the street in Shanghai and you see somebody with eyes like this but a nose like this, that's my brother. Tell him I said hello. <laughs> when the communists took over, not only did my father have to leave, but so did all of the missionaries who'd been there since the time of Hudson Taylor who left this country to convert the Chinese people to faith in Jesus. Missionaries worked very hard in China but they didn't get too far most of the time. They would leave discouraged. It was difficult in China. Finally, when the communists took over, the missionaries get kicked out, and the local leaders, like Watchman Nee, get put in prison. And everybody thought, that's it. The years of Mao, climaxing with the Cultural Revolution, anybody who was a Christian would have been killed. They try to deprogram them first at a, at a work farm, and if they couldn't, they, that would be it. They'd kill them. Those people suffered terribly under the communists, a whole generation of Christians. They knew what the early Christians knew. If I become a Christian, it's going to cost me my life. Maybe it'll cost my family their life. It was unbelievable 
when the bamboo curtain began to lift and people went into China and they discovered that the average born-again Christian in the world, his name is not Smith, it is not Jones, the average child of God, born-again believer, his name is Ping. Nobody knows how many people are in China believe in Jesus. But they know that the body of Christ grew astronomically under that terrible, terrible darkness. That the things that the missionaries couldn't do for generations and decades, that faithful leaders, growth they couldn't see. People like Watchmanee couldn't see that kind of growth, but it grew under those terrible years of persecution. What made the church in China grow? Why is the average Christian in the world named Ping? I'll tell you why. They saw something that people in Manchester and Liverpool and London and Birmingham and New York and Los Angeles don't see. They saw a crucified body that was walking in the power of the resurrection. The book of Daniel describes the Roman Empire as a great and terrible beast worse than all the others. Nobody got in the way of those guys. Read Josephus, what the Romans did to the Jews. Read your own history, what they did to the Anglo-Saxons, lower the sea and everything in this country. Nobody got in their way. Nothing could overthrow the Roman Empire. Daniel says it was notorious. Nothing could, he predicted it. He said nothing would be like this empire. Nothing. What happened? What overthrew the Roman Empire? There was not an army in the world that would have had a chance to overthrow the Roman Empire with its pagan idolatry. With nearly one-third of the people in, in, slaves. Terrible social injustice. Emperors having themselves deified, killing people who wouldn't worship the emperor. Unspeakable idolatry. Cult prostitution imported from imitating the Hellenistic religions of Greece. People would have to take their daughters and, and their sons and use them in sexual and homosexual cult prostitution as part of the religion. Worse than that, the gladiators. People forced into being gladiators. Having to kill and be killed to entertain the aristocracy and so on. And the Circus Maximus and in the Colosseum. It was absolutely godless. Nothing could stand against the Roman Empire. Nothing could put an end to the power of this wickedness. Except one thing. A crucified body that had been resurrected in the power of Jesus. That's what overthrew pagan Rome. Now it's a terrible tragedy of history that papal Rome became no better than pagan Rome afterwards. But the early Christians overthrew the power of pagan Rome. Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. These people love not their lives unto death in this world. As Paul wrote to the Romans, quoting from Psalm 44, for thy sake, O Lord, we're being put to death all day long. What was Paul's proof of his anointing as an apostle? You've heard me say it. Was it all the churches he planted? Never. He didn't say that was his proof of his anointing. Was it all the people who got saved? Never. Was it the fact that he could stand up and debate famous rabbinic leaders and win the debates? That wasn't his proof. It wasn't the churches he planted. 
It wasn't the people who were saved. It wasn't the miracles he did. Paul even raised people from the dead like in Acts chapter 20. None of that was the proof of his anointing. The proof of his anointing was Galatians 5. I bear the marks of Christ on my body. He uses the Greek word stigma, stigmata, stigmatized. He was willing to be accursed in his flesh in a visible way for the sake of Christ. A crucified body that was resurrected overthrew the Roman Empire. My wife's a Romanian Jew. Her parents just went home day before yesterday. They visited us for Purim. The Holocaust survivors, they suffered under the Nazis. Not only escaped with their lives, most of the family was killed, a lot of them. And then under the communists. My wife grew up a refusenik, immigrated to Israel when she was 11. Ceausescu was terrible. We were always, when I lived in Israel, we were always writing letters, trying to get believers out of prison that we were reading about and all this. An evil man. But the church grew in Romania. Revivals happened among gypsies and people who had previously been unconverted, unconvertible. Many Jewish people were saved. Richard and Sabina Wormbrand, Christ to the Communist Nations of Romanian Jews that came out of that Jewish community. And so many of the believers we knew in Israel were from Romania, Jews. Jews, considered unreachable, they were saved in Romania. Quite a number of them. What made a church in a country like that grow? What did people see that made them believe? They saw a crucified body that had been resurrected. Not I who lives, but Christ in me. I'm dead with Christ and I'm a new creation. They didn't only say it. They lived it. Now, <laughs> the revolt in Romania that overthrew him began in Timisoara. That had the highest concentration of evangelical Christians in Romania. It was Timisoara that it began. I've met many Christians who lived in the power of the resurrection. I've met many Messianic Jews who lived in the power of the resurrection. I remember about ten years ago in Israel, this was before the Iron Curtain was still standing, very few Jews could get out of Israel, uh, out of Russia to come to Israel. But some did, and some were believers who were saved in underground, in fact, quite a number were believers who were saved in underground Pentecostal and Baptist churches before Gorbachev, before Perestroika. And I remember this one brother. He had five kids and a wife. And he was some kind of a leader in one of these underground churches. And the communists, the KGB, imprisoned him for years. His family at certain points, I believe, didn't know if he was dead or alive. They beat him repeatedly and tortured him. But he would not deny his faith. So they gave him psychotropic drug injections in large quantities intravenously and electroshock repeatedly. He's only a middle-aged man, but he looks like an old man because of what they did to him. He's in Israel now. He's Jew. And his wife leads him around by his hand. He walks like this. The only thing he can say is in Russian. He can only say one phrase in Russian. So he says, Jesus loves you in Russian. Then the five little kids following, some of them are older now. It was maybe eight, ten years ago. 
They gave him electroshock. They tortured him. Psychotropic drugs. They tried to destroy his faith in Yeshua the Messiah. That's the one thing they couldn't destroy. They destroyed his life in this world. They destroyed his mind, his health. They destroyed everything but his faith in Jesus. That man had a crucified body that was walking and living in the power of the resurrection. My wife and myself were very privileged to be a friend of a Jewish woman from Hungary who was a second generation Jewish believer. Rose Wormer, she was a friend of ours. At one point in Romania, uh, Hungary, Hungary, she could have escaped because she'd been what they called the Christian. They didn't call them Messianic Jews then. They just said they were Jewish Christians. And because she was a Christian, she had an opportunity to escape. And the Lord spoke to her directly and said, No, I want you to go to the Gestapo and turn yourself in as a Jew. She did. Very few people, either Jews or Gypsies, survived Auschwitz. She's one of the very few who did. They put her in Auschwitz. And what happened to her in Auschwitz was, you can imagine, unspeakable. They were taking these Jewish women by the thousands and thousands, every day thousands of them, stripping them naked, shaving their heads, pulling their teeth out and gassing them, and then putting them in ovens. She volunteered for that. I don't know how many there are she doesn't know how many they are. Well, she knows now because she went to be with the Lord. But when she went to be with the Lord, there was a lot of other people waiting for her. A number of those Jewish women who were, who were gassed to death, who heard the gospel of the Messiah Yeshua from a Jew who believed it before they were gassed to death. Rose Wormer had a crucified life. That woman, she had a crucified body that lived in the power of the resurrection of Yeshua the Messiah. I've known people like that. Many of them are people who suffered for their faith. Many, not all. But I know people like that. I've known many Christians like that. Godly people. It's usually not the big guy with the big mouth like me. It's usually the little old lady who washes the church steps that fasts and prays every day. It's usually people like that. I've known a lot of Christians like that, I would say, over the years. They stand out. I can point to this one and to that one. You can see them. But there's a big difference between seeing individual Christians and a crucified body. We're the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ. You and I are the body of Christ. When we are a crucified body that's been resurrected, when that's what the world sees, it's prolific. Hosea chapter 6, his resurrection is ours. His death is ours. The world is skeptical. And they're going to get more skeptical. What's the key? Prayer, of course. Signs and wonders, yes, they have their place. The preaching of the gospel, absolutely. I deny none of those things. 
But there's only one thing that's ever going to put this nation back on the track to real revival. There's only one thing that's going to make this hardened nation reconsider the claims of Jesus. It's not some con merchant from America with big rings and a fancy limousine telling them God wants them rich. It's not a bunch of our brothers and sisters, people we have to love, behaving like lunatics in some Toronto church. Show me a body that's been resurrected. Show me a body that's been crucified and has been resurrected. Let me see. Paul could say, here. Rose Wormer, she could say, here. Richard Wormbrand, he could say, here. But a crucified body is where each and every one of us can stand up and say, here. Richard Wormbrand told a story when he was being tortured in prison. This Jewish believer is a friend of my wife. They speak to each other in Romanian and that, you know. And he told about a Romanian peasant who'd gotten saved and the communists put him in prison and tortured him. But there was also a scientist from the Academy of Science in Bucharest who was not a communist. He didn't even believe in God. He was just a scientist who was not a communist. So they put him in prison. And they tortured him. And there was a room maybe that was described to me maybe about half the size of this hall, this, this, this room. And maybe 40 people living in it, teetering on the brink of starvation. Every one of them having been beaten repeatedly by the Securitata. And this Romanian peasant, who was not an educated man, was going around witnessing to these other people who were dying with him. And Wormbrand was there. And uh, this scientist, who was an intellectual and prominent, began mocking this Romanian peasant. And he said to him, How can you be happy? How can you say you have a joy when this is happening to you? You don't even know if they killed your family. How can you have this joy? Don't you see... And every day they were carrying two, three dead bodies out. And they were just wondering when it was going to be, they were going to go next. Why are you happy? He said, I've told you many times, I'm happy because of Jesus. Remember Jeremiah? Jeremiah had a delight, but he could not sit in the circle of merrymakers, but he still had a joy. He said, Jesus. You're happy because of Jesus. Do you see Jesus? Oh, yes, I see him every day. Do you talk to Jesus? He says, oh, yes, I talk to Jesus every day. Does Jesus talk back to you? This peasant tells the scientist, oh, yes, he talks back to me every day. What does he do? Does he ever smile at you? He says, oh, yes, Jesus smiles at me. Show me how he looks when he smiles. And the peasant says, like this. And the Shekinah glory came up the face of this peasant. And the scientist falls down and begins pounding his fist on the floor. You've seen Jesus Christ and he became a believer. That's reality. 
That's reality. This is Laodicea. A lukewarm church that's materialistic, that's proud, that's oblivious to its true state. A Laodicea's first problem is it doesn't know it's Laodicea. It doesn't know it's lukewarm. It thinks because it's well off materially and financially, it's well off spiritually, but it isn't. But there's a faithful remnant in Laodicea. And Jesus says, those whom I love, I'm going to correct. I want him to correct the things that are wrong in me. Because when he comes, I want to be ready. No. Nope. Toronto is not going to bring revival. Kansas City couldn't bring revival. Jim Challenge couldn't bring revival. None of that stuff's going to bring revival. These people don't believe anymore. They're too skeptical. And to tell you the truth, when I look at some of the things going on in the name of Christianity today, I don't blame them. If I wasn't already saved, I would be skeptical. Show me. Let me see. Show me, then I'll believe. Show me, then I'll believe. Let me see a body that's been crucified and resurrected, then I'll believe. That's when they're going to believe. They're going to believe and we can say, here it is. God bless you and thank you. Who's going to be first? Yes, Could you, could you make a question loud so everyone can hear is what I'm sorry about. <laughs> Um, the area regarding this letting to give comfort and have some guidance to a lot of people perhaps who are <laughs> struggle with it, the situation in their own churches. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, the sword of the Spirit tells what is flesh and what is spirit. It's very easy to confuse something of the flesh, which in this case means our emotions, or a soul or own mind of what God is doing. It's the sword of the Spirit in Hebrews 4, 12, that's the Word of God that will tell you what is flesh and what is spirit. It's the first test. Very plainly, in the book of Acts, the people heard the praises of God, not dogs barking. Very plainly, Paul says that unsaved people come in and see chaos. The gifts will do more harm than good to the to the human. Very plainly, in the book of Acts, and throughout the history of the church, for that matter, when charismatic or Pentecostal phenomena happened, it was unsaved people falling under the power of God and repenting. It was not Christians behaving the way that Corinthians says we shouldn't, because it's bad for our testimony. That's to begin with. More than that, go to the room of the people who are teaching it. Satan's entire purpose could be summed up and say to deny the flood, the cross of Yeshua. Every false or every perversion of Christianity will try to deny the cross of Jesus in some way. Every one. Okay? Every one of them. But Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't even want to call it a cross. They call it a torture stick. Roman Catholicism. Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, and Peter, Jesus dies once and for all. We don't need a priest to make sacrifices again and again and again. He sanctified us for all time. Roman Catholicism, no. For that, you have a priest, it's the same sacrifice of Calvary again and again and again. Salvation doesn't come by the new birth of the cross, it comes by the sacrament. 
Trinity Christ Street, another gospel. Okay? The light of the cross. Everything, every, every perversion of Christianity will deny the cross in some way. These people come from the word faith movement. The faith chapter of the New Testament is what? Hebrews. Hebrews 11 talks more about faith than all the rest of the New Testament put together. In fact, it talks more about faith than all the rest of the Bible put together. And it gives us examples of people who have faith and says they're imitated. That chapter doesn't mention money one time. The only time it even mentions wealth is when Moses could have had it and turned his back on it because of his faith. Look at Hebrews 11. Just look at the end of it. Let's begin in verse 35. Others were tortured. You don't have to suffer. Job was a disgusting carnal man, said Benihim. Benihim and Kenneth Sultan are the mentors of Rodney Brown, to whom, via Angie Clark, this thing with the Toronto John Harmon. They were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mocking, scourging, chains, and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sworn in two. They were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They went about in 3,000 pound suits and travel roads driving in the city of Limo. Oh, sorry, I thought I was in Oklahoma. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts, mountains, and caves, and holes in the ground. The son of man had no place to lay his head, a servant of unabundant master. All of these having gained approval through their whose faith you want to believe. God is Kenneth Oakland. God is a Rodney Brown. God is a Ray McCauley. You can't believe both. Paul says that those wanting to get rich in this world will lose their faith, doesn't it? If I have a lot of money, if I'm a multi multi millionaire, I consider myself to be poor as a Christian, the Bible says. Because it doesn't belong to me, it belongs to Jesus, I'm just a steward. And if you're a flat broke, if you're a skin, if you're on the soul, if you're unemployed, you're rich because you're a co writer of Christ. Amen. In Yeshua, we are all rich, and in Yeshua, we are all poor. That's it. That's faith. They have another faith. But the problem is, to have another gospel. Paul says if he comes himself, or even if an angel of God comes with another gospel, get away from them. Rodney Brown comes from the background of Kenneth Copeland. Watch the video for yourself. Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagin, they follow the gospel of E.W. Kennedy, which says the following. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. They say, no. When Jesus died on the cross, he became a satanic being of one nature with Lucifer in hell. He was tortured in hell for three days and had to be born again in hell as a satanic being of one nature with Lucifer. That's the gospel. 
to have another gospel. So because the cross of Yeshua is not central to their view of salvation, neither is there the cross of Yeshua central to their view of the Christian life. Instead of think of your cross and follow me, they didn't claim it, understand. Now I don't suggest God cannot and does not suffer his people. He does. But to say that you don't have to suffer we should all be rich is crazy. If the apostles were not ready to suffer and to endure poverty and hardship, there'd be no church. If the, if the pilgrim fathers in this country were not willing to be murdered, we wouldn't have this Bible. Tyndale would have been forget it. It's a lie. It's another gospel. Look at the source of it. The source tells you everything. As Christians, we can agree and disagree about a lot of things. But there are four things we never compromise on. To me, baptizing daily is unbiblical and stupid. But I know people who love Jesus just as much as I do who disagree. For me, that's no barrier to fellowship. It's no barrier to them being like, I can accept them. Now, I, can, I personally could not be in the church with a single baby, but I can accept people who are my brothers. For me to say the gift of the Spirit ended with the apostles is crazy. I don't believe that. It's not scriptural, and it's not my experience, but first of all, it's not scriptural. But I know people who love the Lord who strongly feel that. On the other extreme, or I pray in tongues myself, to say if you don't pray in tongues, you're not baptized in the Spirit, to me that's crazy. I know plenty of carnal Christians who pray in tongues, and plenty of people with the Holy Spirit still lives that don't. However, I can accept the fact that there are people who feel that way about tongues. There's no barrier to fellowship. Those issues are important, but they're not what's most important. For me, it really drives me up the wall replacing theology. I believe it's a false doctrine of deception. It drives me crazy. But I know people who are not anti-Semitic, they're just blind to that area. Now, I would debate with them up and down the wall for hours. But, I, they're wrong. But, I'm not going to say they're not my brother or my sister. Because they don't see the truth for Israel. Even though they're very wrong. There are four things, however, we never compromise on that are values. <coughs> the first is the nature and person of Yeshua and the Trinity of the Godhead. People are saying he's not God or the Holy Spirit is not God. That's it. That's that. What can we give Christ? And below Christology, as the theological term is called, there is no basis for fellowship. We can only have fellowship in the Spirit based on Christ. That's it. Secondly, is the authority of Scripture. If people try to take some experience or some tradition and elevate that above the authority of the Bible, no basis for fellowship. Roman Catholicism, man-made doctrines. Mormonism, no, no. Thirdly, morality, irrepentant sin. When someone is in a sin that won't repent, Fourthly, in addition to the authority of Scripture, morality, the person of Christ, the fourth thing is the gospel. How are we saved? How can sinful people be justified in the sight of a holy God? 
If you say it by the sacraments, or by good works, or by the mitzvot, or by anything other than the blood of Yeshua, you have another gospel. And if you say that when Yeshua died on the cross and said, it is finished, it wasn't. And when he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, he, his spirit was not committed to the Father, but he came as a panic being in hell with Lucifer. That's another gospel. Yeah, that's that false prophet and false teacher who didn't mean the Lord Jesus. Toronto, have another gospel. Not necessarily the people in it, but its leaders. Rodney Brown comes from that whole background. The authority of Scripture is replaced by some other experience or tradition. I got a letter from an even minister, Michael Carr, in Harold. Michael Evans and Poses are in the Bible, and they're not wrong, so why should not the Toronto be wrong? Just because something's not in the Bible doesn't mean it's wrong. Look at 1 Corinthians 4 6. Do not exceed the things which are written. You cannot base a doctrine on anything but the Word of God. Someone tries to base a doctrine on something not the Scripture is exceeding the things that are written. So the Leviticus is called offering strange fire. <coughs> they didn't do something the Bible said not to do. They just did something the Bible didn't say to do. And God does it. Follow your Scripture, Toronto. There's also moral issues. Again, the issue is affecting the person's life. Benny Hinn says it was my person for the Trinity. He claims to have repented at one point, but since he's repented, he says things that are just as heretical as sins. Hank Hanegraaff has been documented. If anybody who's that fundamentally wrong that his mind person to the Trinity and repent he's down to the ministry and go learn the word of God, or will tell you. He lay his ministry down and go learn the Bible before he went back into it. That's what he said about since then, that it's just as crazy as what he said. Those are the four issues. And Toronto can affect at least three, sometimes four of those issues. Then answer your question. Look where it's coming from. And another gospel. Look where it's coming from. It's not the following of scripture. Look where it's coming from. Look at their view of Jesus. I'll just add one point to the brother's question. The Holy Spirit is only worshipped in the context of the triunity of the Godhead. God, he's worshipped as God in the sense of Elohim, the plurality of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is never prayed to, he is never worshipped apart from the Trinity. Jesus is prayed to, the Father is prayed to, but the Holy Spirit never is. He comes as a servant. He speaks from the typology of Abraham. He sends a servant to get a bride for the Son. The Father sends the Spirit to get a bride for the Son, the Church. You understand? He's always a servant who points people to Jesus. He never tries to take glory for himself. Praying to the Holy Spirit in that sense is not scriptural. He is never prayed to in the Word of God. Never. He's only worshipped in the context of the Trinity. And that's another thing. They're putting the Holy Spirit above Jesus. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will point people to him. Another question? Yes, sister.
Sounds like a con job to me. <laughs> I believe in the principle of tithing. It's part of the law, not the new covenant. Tithing is key, it's a big word for ten. No, the principle. See, I got it on the tape. So the difference between principle and practice, okay, is the principle is Jesus is our Passover. I don't expect people who aren't Jewish to celebrate Passover, except for the Lord's Supper. Okay? But the principle of him being the Lamb is got to be there, even though the Pesach isn't necessarily for Gentiles. Okay? Tithing is the same. The principle of giving God your first fruits is that. But the percentage, I know Christian businessmen that they gave God less than 25%, they consider it to be robbing God. You understand? It's the principle. That's for the new covenant, not necessarily the percentage. Now, I'm looking against Titus. I'm not speaking against Titus. I affirm the principle of it. But this idea that 10% is for God and 90% for these crazy for God. Okay? And, and the amount that God needs you to really give is every percentage. The principle is the first fruit, but what that is is how God leads you. Now, these people give me this. I, I, that's what the teaching in your church that is pretty suspicious. At best, they're an error. Yeah. At worst, if you see, if you see, if you see that the minister's driving big cars or something like that, then you're more than that. Yes, brother. You mentioned uh, Satan a few times. My first time here, except for my virgin. The manifestations that take place in the meetings that you conduct. Yes. I think it was the Holy Spirit of the devil. Okay. Manifestations can be one of three things. We have to practice the answer by looking at Matthew 7, 22. Lord, he's not the mighty words in your name. He didn't deny it. He just said, get lost. Okay? If for his own glory, for his own glory, and for the good of others, God can use anybody. The gift and calling of God will force God repentance in Romans 11, 29. That's a special need for the Jews, but it's a general truth. Most of these guys, most of these guys began an honest son of God to serve the religious pride and the love of money. But the gift and calling goes without repentance. It can be one, I would say, from a cult called the children of God. If I was to spend the rest of the night thinking about it, I couldn't tell you anything good about the cars, children of God. So I got saved in that. I used them. I was in the world of drugs and everything. I was never saved from church. I had to be something like that. Other people were crazy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because God used the sign, it doesn't mean it's right. Jesus said, yeah, you did the sign to one, but I just said the meaning. These things being hidden can be one of, objectively, it can be one of three things. A legitimate gift of the Holy Spirit that's being misused. Something which is a psychological manipulation. Something demonic or possibly a counterfeit of two and three. Two point in Christian psychiatrists in the States, even before Toronto, did a book on hypnotic induction. One form of men on television. No form of camera, but is it this? I don't watch TV much, but they focus on form of camera. You watch him for 15 minutes, then you watch the Benny Hinn video for 15 minutes. You will not see any discriminable difference. <laughs> These things can easily be done by hypnotic induction. One of the Christian I used to do stuff that tells 
I can show you how to do this stuff. So I, I, I convince a lot of this stuff, it's not a conjunction, it's not a conjunction, people are being disposable on it anyway. It's those. But certainly the doctrines of Benny Hinn, some of his doctrines, are to say the least, from the pit of hell. It can be real, a real gift being refused, it can be surely psychological, which most of it is, or it can be something demonic, which some of it may or may not be enough to have to say. But certainly, the way it seems on is not in accordance with the Word of God. Remember, Tom Sunday wanted Jesus to put on the show, he wouldn't do it. He would never allow signs and wonders or miracles or the Stephen Nicola old manifestations. He would never allow that stuff to be magnified or eclipsed repentance. These signs follow. These people are the signs among the gospel. Jesus refused to do that. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Well, let's just ask the question. If you speak now, please don't be able to hear you. You said you saw before about Old Testament. Yes. Whenever you see somebody raising from the dead in the Bible, okay? Whenever you see a resurrection account in the Bible, it teaches something about what's going to happen to us, especially the resurrection of Jesus. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <coughs> you have a Bible? Share a Bible with me. Oh. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, says that Christ is the race of the dead, the first fruit of those who are asleep. Okay? Now he uses sleep. Unsaved people die, Christians go to sleep. When Jesus wakes up Lazarus, he says, Lazarus is asleep, right? When he wakes up the little girl, he says, she's asleep. And you know what he says? No, she's asleep. Unsaved people die, Christians go to sleep. St. Paul writes, don't be overly grieved for the brethren who sleep. If you go to sleep, you wake up again. Death is for the unsaved. God's people go to sleep, okay? Now, go on in this chapter talking about a seed. When you take a seed and plant it in the earth, what comes out is holy deserts and what goes in this chapter. Your body will be planted in the earth someday and do not holy deserts and what goes in in the resurrection. Okay. The reference is John 12, 24. Unless a seed falls from the earth and die, it cannot live. Jesus is using a midrash in the parable. A seed has a, a shell with a germ inside of it. A biological process happens when it gets planted in the earth, the shell dies, so the germ comes out. Inside of you is a new creation, but it's encased in the shell of the old creation. The old creation has to be thrown in the earth and die so the new creation can come out. Okay? That teaches about the resurrection. Now, by faith, that should be happening already. A living seed falls through the earth and dies and cannot live. We should be dying spiritually to ourselves, to the world, to the flesh every day. But someday, unless the Lord comes, we're going to die physically. And what within, the old thing will come out of so the new thing can come out. That's what happened to Jesus. His corruptible flesh became incorruptible. 
What happens to him is going to happen to you. The way he rose is the way you're going to rise. And the way his body was when he rose teaches something about the way your body is going to be. When you rise. <coughs> you know what I'm saying? You look at the other people in the Bible who rose from the dead. One of them that appear, like Sam Samuel's another one, when he was back. Each one of those things teaches something about the resurrection. But, perhaps the main thing is the transfiguration. Such as somebody who died, Moses, somebody who never died, Elijah, and Jesus, and they all look the same. When the Lord comes, some people will still be alive. Some will be dead. The dead in Christ rise first. We shall be changed. We shall all be in here. It doesn't matter if you go to sleep or if you're awake when he comes. You're going to be like it. That's the resurrection. How long have you been a Christian? You got a good church teaches the Bible? Good. Read first Corinthians 15. That's the good place to begin learning about the resurrection, first Corinthians 15. The other stuff, the typology and the symbols, that'll come to you later. Just get the basic idea of a seed being planted in the earth and coming out. That's what happened to Jesus. That's what happens to us. Make sense? Okay, that should be it. God bless you, alright?